Good morning, this is The Burner. I am James Butler and it is Monday the 30th of March and we are still in lockdown. And I hope you had something resembling a weekend, though many of you will doubtless have found your weekend plans somewhat cramped. Uh, Perhaps some of you have tidier houses than you ever thought possible. Or perhaps some of you have devolved into a Hobbesian state of pre-social filth communicating only in grunts and glares as you edge closer to your last pack of toilet roll. Or perhaps you've broken out the cookbooks for that recipe you've always wanted to try. As I understand it, there's been a wave of cookery photos interspersed perhaps with increasingly frenetic thirst traps hitting Instagram. Maybe after this cooking on the left will get better, we might even share something other than nondescript vegan slop at left events. And perhaps I might even get on Instagram, which in my mind has become a sort of paradise, a walled garden where ever bleaker coronavirus headlines do not intrude. Stranger things have happened. Anyway, thank you to those of you who've sent me stories of social solidarity over the weekend. We'll be broadcasting some of those as the week goes on. And if you can think of a story and you haven't sent it to me yet, there is still time. So please, please do that. Now, unfortunately, we'd already gone out on Friday when the news broke that Boris Johnson and later Matt Hancock had tested positive for the coronavirus and was self-isolating. Pictures over this weekend show him presiding over a meeting uh, in which social distancing was not quite in evidence from a flat screen TV managing to be both banal and dystopian at the same time. Now, it's obviously not a surprise that either Hancock or Johnson have got it. It was not so long ago that they were extolling the benefits of going on as normal, as if fighting the virus were an exercise in morale boosting, showing it who's boss, a kind of cross between blitz spirit and rebranding chips as freedom fries. I, 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 I'm shaking hands. I was, at a, I was at a hospital the other night where I think there were, a few, there were actually a few coronavirus uh, patients and I shook hands with everybody, uh, you'll be pleased to know, and, and I continue to shake hands and... Uh, Uh, I think it's very important that we, you know... And you might think back on all of those close-nestled sessions in the Commons Chamber and wonder how wise they were, or how seriously distancing rules were being taken in Number 10, which is, after all, a complex, frantic and Warren-like converted townhouse full of people who believe congenitally that the rules just don't apply to them. As the long-shot Labour deputy leadership candidate Rosanna Allen Khan suggested this weekend, is it not a little disturbing that they appear to be isolating themselves for less than the 14 days that the WHO suggests? Uh, And as Alan Khan argues, the WHO guidelines aren't somehow inapplicable to Britain. That's something that many on the right have suggested. Uh, There's some evidence that viral shedding continues for more than the seven days uh, that they appear to be isolating themselves for. But for the time being, it appears to be Michael Gove perhaps possessed of an immune system not of this earth, who's leading the press conferences, though Dominic Raab is supposed to take over if Johnson becomes incapacitated. Perish the thought. Gove has been everywhere refusing quite to answer any questions about how long the UK's lockdown is going to be in place, but the UK's chief medical officer also indicated it could be very likely three to six months pending review. Some more thoughts on how lockdowns end, which is going to be a serious question later this week. But the common thread of the weekend headlines wasn't so much about Johnson's continued and faithful command from his bunker, although there were some seriously dazzled bootlicking pieces about that, uh, but much more about blame. 
If ever you needed a demonstration that politics does not stop during the emergency period, this is it. It's pretty clear that there's a concerted effort in the UK to really structure the conversation about blame and culpability in advance, because that conversation will come, and it will come inevitably as things worsen. So we got headlines over the weekend really screaming that it's all China's fault, threatening there will be a reckoning and the like. Ian Duncan-Smith wrote a column for the Mail demanding we quote, stop kowtowing to these despots, which I suppose must win some prize for racist insinuation in a concise space. Look, no one thinks China's somehow exempt from criticism in all this, from their initial repressive response to news and sometimes questionable statistics to the questions now being raised about the quality of some of the masks being sent in aid to other countries. But it's simply absurd to suggest that China was somehow in control of, or to blame for, the UK government response, which was slow, confused, full of U-turns, poorly communicated, unclear, and a range of other adjectives too. Part of this, I think, is the weird temporal dimension of the coronavirus crisis. One of the other stories that ran this weekend was Johnson's claim that measures might have to get stricter as the number of deaths rise or if social distancing isn't fully in evidence. Now, that, of course, is the other culprit, the general public. We talked about that a bit last week. Evidence suggests the British are particularly exercised about the response among the people more so than the government. So it looks like that's working. Uh, But this makes only questionable sense as a defence. We know there's a time lag between policy and outcome here, so the deaths that we're seeing now came from infections back when Johnson was still uselessly drivelling on about shaking people's hands, and Hancock (laughs) was intensely relaxed about going to the pub. This thing doesn't work on the normal 24-hour news cycle that political journalists are used to working to. It requires attention to that slightly longer two-week cycle. Now, that's no reason that you might not need stricter measures, but they are to try to throttle off the rate in a couple of weeks' time, partly because you're now reaping the whirlwind from your dithering and failure two weeks back and have to deal with that. Uh, And the driver for that cycle in terms of public policy, well, the levers all still reside in number 10. So that's one temporal dimension to this, that two-week cycle. But there are longer ones as well, of the sort that no one is really paying deep attention to yet, but which must form a part of some kind of public inquiry when this is done. And no, I don't mean the kind that comes after a decade when emails have disappeared and no one remembers anything. That longer cycle is about UK readiness and capacity, and it's just starting to trickle out, including in an investigative piece by Harry Davies in The Guardian on the Department of Health's refusal to buy protective eye gear on the rationale of austerity, and it's in other reporting as well on a pandemic preparedness exercise held in 2016, exercise Cygnus, uh, which predicted an overwhelmed NHS and its lack of critical care beds and ventilators. Looks very, very much like today. Cygnus, I should say, is Latin for swan, I don't know whether that's a reference to bird flu or a black swan event. But save for the difference in virus, that exercise assumed uh, an H2N2 influenza virus, it looks really, really frighteningly like today. Now, the results were never made public. Was it acted upon? It appears very little, if at all. Instead of shoring up capacity of ventilators or beds, they say they concentrated on supply chains. So where are they? Now, that's the other temporal cycle as well, long-term preparedness and the failure to build capacity. So that's a very, very long-term one. Uh, And it goes right the way back to austerity policy under the coalition. But perhaps this also suggests a third temporal cycle between the two, that crucial period between notification that the virus was spreading and the imposition of measures here, so that early period. So presumably the government had this Cygnus report to hand and knew the seriousness of what was coming down the line. So what was going on in that period? We will have answers because we must have answers before all this is through. All right, 
a week ago, I asked you for questions for Rosa Gilbert, currently on lockdown in Italy, and she's very kindly answered some for us and now brings us an update on the situation there. Boris Johnson's um, uh, numbers have gone up in the in the polls, I guess. Um, are people backing Conte's government? Has it changed over time? So short answer is yes. Um, Conte and who's the prime minister? He's this kind of kind of like a party neutral figure. I mean, like people say he's closer to the five star movement. But he doesn't come from politics. He's a academic. He's a legal academic, um, and he's kind of he does he does he, because he's kind of uh, almost like a technocrat. He kind of does inspire a bit of trust because he's just so kind of you know he's not trying to play party politics with the situation, um, and people are kind of cooing over him all the time, like sharing these ridiculous memes like he speaks 20 languages and he's got five degrees and all this stuff um but yeah his his uh, ratings have gone up in the polls uh the government's approval ratings are 56 conte's are 61 which is about 15 points higher than it was a month ago uh salvini is right down maloney who's the leader of the fratelli d'italia which is the kind of neo-fascist party she's risen above salvini in the approval ratings um so, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because Boris Johnson, I, I can't work out why Boris Johnson is, is so popular. I think it's because of the press more than anything. Conte, like, he's 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 been able to sort of provide a figure of sort of um, almost kind of a figure of calm and reassurance to people. Um, and the main opposition to him is that he's allowing himself to be played by the business interests in not closing workplaces, basically. That's like the the main criticism um, that can be levelled at him. And it's true. I mean, like, I don't know if this is out of political naivety or just, you know, being in government and and, the, and placing business over, over um, people's lives, essentially. But um, that's the main kind of concern people have with him. Um, Related to that was a question about the general feeling about the EU and Germany. So, yeah, um, there has been a huge surge in anti-EU sentiment. Um, and it's that's recorded as well in, in polls that have come out. People really um, becoming a bit... And, and also it relates to, con, to the support for Conte because he's... Or, like, he's trying at least, uh, or making a kind of deal of standing up to the EU and trying to push for euro bonds... So that the, the the financial crisis that's being um, provoked by all of this can be shared amongst the entire eurozone, um, and obviously Draghi is coming out in favour of that as well. Um, and also, like Mattarella, the, the the president of Italy, has kind of made a big show of of pushing, trying to push the EU into action on this. So Conte, ha- you know, ha- has won some plaudits for kind of trying to push that. Obviously, the EU can just push Italy around a bit and and the other southern uh countries um so yeah that's kind of provoked a lot of anti-EU feeling especially towards Germany because of the situation of them blocking the the masks that were being sent over from China um and everyone's like you know whatever happens EU solidarity we're getting more support from from Cuba and from China than we are from Germany and other EU allies um but there has been there have been reports as well recently of patients being treated 
uh, being flown from northern Italy to Cologne and places in Germany. So I don't know if that will have an effect on on changing attitudes towards Germany. And then the final question was on strike action. How widespread is it? Is it just limited to the most militant and organised end of the labour movement? Yes, basically, it's it, it should be much more widespread and it should have started much earlier, really, given that, um, uh, you know, when the lockdown came in, came into place, uh, there were still, you know, all the factories were still open. Immediately after the lockdown, the, the Fiat factories did go on strike and I think a few others, but that was, this was all organised by the USB, the, the what they call the, the base trade union, you know, one of the... Um, more militant unions, and also FIOM, which is the, which is within the the kind of big federation CGL. Um, but FIOM is like the, the metal workers union. It's much more militant. It was this known for sort of being militant during the fifties and sixties as well. Um, so yeah, almost all of that has come from the the smaller unions, the CGL, which is the big federation. They they threatened a general strike and just you know. It's just weak because they have no intention of actually of actually coming through with it. And uh, even though recently, you know, they've kind of stirred on this, it, it could have it could have happened much sooner. I mean, um, the, these parts of Lombardy, which are which are being really badly hit by the by the contagion, are still running loads of factories, warehouses, non-essential. Um, and you've got this situation where, you know, like a call centre worker dies, 34-year-old um, call centres are on the list of essential, you know, even if it's doesn't matter for what company it is, it's still on the list of essential businesses that need to stay open. So, yeah, um, I think that's something that hopefully won't will be different in the UK because here it's it's been a massive disappointment that the the bulk of it has fallen on these on the smaller unions who don't have the kind of uh, industrial power and kind of ability to mobilize as the big federations do who have, have have kind of failed on on this major major issue now that was part one of rosa's ask me anything we've got part two of that coming tomorrow on the lega and how it's reacting to the pandemic and how to stay sane during the lockdown something perhaps we're all going to need to hear my thanks to Rosa as ever and I should say there's a strike today at the big Amazon warehouse outside Florence and in tune with what she says organised by a small division within the Chigile rather than the big unions themselves solidarity with them please do get in touch by the way if you're listening from somewhere abroad I'm curious especially about elsewhere in Europe as well as in the United States I'm always keen to hear from you and you know my email A few odds and ends. What emerges on the other side of this crisis? Robert Halfon, the Tory MP and blue-collar Tory enthusiast, calls it the Workers' Party, somewhat bizarrely, wrote an article for Conservative Home last week praising the emergence of a, quote, moderate social democratic Tory state. Uh, It ends on a note of truly grotesque brown-nosing, but it's worth reading for thinking about the way factions of the Conservative Party will think about the state and Tory politics when this is done. Now, I mentioned last week that the government had authorised remote prescription and use of both parts of the early medical abortion bills, pills from home, uh, which they quickly U-turned on and now seem to have U-turned on again. This is one worth keeping an eye on, as BPAS say the confusion over this is dangerous to women in already stressful situations. There's a link in the notes to this show to their response. 
And the Labour leadership, which seems to have been going on since time immemorial, draws to a close this week, with the candidates being told to pre-record acceptance speeches at, uh, as videos. Now that may appear farcical, but it's nowhere near as farcical as the suggestion in The Times this weekend that Rachel Reeves might be heading for a job as Shadow Chancellor. Why not just set the time machine to 2010? As the UK death toll rocketed over this weekend, including the deaths of two frontline NHS doctors, huge anxiety washes through the papers about the amount and quality of PPE available in the NHS, something that's become a common refrain for NHS workers. Boris Johnson posts a video from his Corona bunker declaring there is such a thing as society in a slightly ham-fisted attempt to signal he's not an old-style Thatcherite. Trump has propagated a conspiracy theory at a press conference that nurses are stealing masks. The situation in New York especially continues to look pretty terrifying. Tory MP Nadim Zahawi is all over the papers making googly eyes at private businesses still working through the emergency, including warehouses like ASOS and Amazon, which I suspect will come to look like a rather foolish exercise pretty soon. A rumour circulates this morning that Nigel Farage plans to appear on a reality show called Celebrity Hunted. Have we not, as a nation, suffered enough? All right, we'll be back with more from Rosa tomorrow. Please do get in touch with thoughts, comments, questions and pointers at james at navaramedia.com. Stay safe, stay home, wash your hands, don't be a prick. That's it. This is The Burner. I am James Butler and I'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.